Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER2. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special on A Good Day to Die Hard, the fifth movie in the Die Hard series. Joining me today in the Slate Studios in New York are Chris Wade. Chris, you are the producer of the Spoiler Podcast, and you're also a big Die Hard fan. I am, to both of those things. And you have actually watched all the movies recently, just rewatched the whole yes, franchise? Yes, since not last Saturday, but the Saturday before. I've seen all five existent Die Hard movies. Oh, so you're deep in John McClane world right I now. Am. Also here on my left is the lovely Alice Tynan. Hi, Alice. It's great to have you back in the Slate studio. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I'm totally gate-crashing this uh, podcast because I'm visiting from Australia again. And last time I was here, I think we talked about uh, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. That's right. That's the last time we've spoiled a movie together. Can you ID yourself? I know you're a film critic in Australia, but what are all your affiliations? Yes. So I'm a freelance film critic. I am on ABC Radio in Australia. I write for The Vine, Limelight Magazine, and I've also totally stolen your idea and have a podcast at home called The Spoiler Guys with some friends of mine where we get to do a similar kind of thing, talk about films after you've seen them. It's, you know, the conversation that you have as you walk out of the cinema. The Spoiler Guys. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. My lawyer will be in touch with you soon, (laughs) (laughs) Come on, I came bearing Tim Tams or something surely that's enough (laughs) Australian swag will get you off this time so we all saw Die Hard 5 as I like to call it last night Um, let's get a quick assessment before we get into spoiling what did did you all think of it oh my god and how it stacked up in the oeuvre the John McClane oeuvre Uh, so after revisiting all four previous Die Hards I do I can't say that I have much affinity for the franchise and I think that on average they're pretty good action movies this is a huge disappointment of an action movie. It is this the lowest the franchise has sunk to you? Yeah, mind? and the weird thing is, is that this is the first Die Hard movie written specifically to be a Die Hard movie. All the other four came from other works or books, previous stories oh, really? I didn't that know they that. developed and said, "Hey, well, first the first one was the introduction of John McClane, and then they developed these other stories and were like, "Hey, let's take this story and make it a John McClane story." Or we want to do another Die Hard. Let's take this already story and make it into a Die Hard story. This one was the first written to be a Die Hard movie. And it just misses every Die Hard beat. And furthermore, is a pretty striking example of the glaring genericness of <laughs> current uh, action filmmaking. Yeah, Are you on board with that? Yeah, look, I, I didn't know that about the stories, but I totally think that this was like a, a Die Hard homage gone wrong. It was like they tried to reboot Die Hard, the original, and then just was just lazy with it. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm happy to go in for a mindless action film. I'll enjoy it. I'll sit there and have a giggle and eat my popcorn and, and you know, laugh at the explosions. But this one, there's so many elements that I was like, oh, really? Like, are we really going to go there? And it just felt really lazy. And, and there is a lot, actually, I will say there's a lot for people who like the original Die Hard because there are a lot of visual nods and a lot of just blatant stealing from the from the first film. So, but in that, it just feels like they've gone, oh, let, yeah, let's just make a of these in-jokes and then just forget to have the rest of the story or anything kind of vaguely fun or competent or new about it. It just feels 
really stale, I think. Well, the big, I guess the big thing that it's trying to do that's relatively new is to feature prominently John McClane's son, yes. right, played by Australian actor Jack yes. Courtney, um, as, a, as a player. I mean, the, the, the movies have had his children before as, you know, bait or as, you know, sort of... Um, well, we had Lucy story last time, right, in, in Four. So she was the one who was kind of kidnapped in... in but she was, but she wasn't a full-on action companion the way that, that John McClane Jr. No, is. she was kind of the, the hostage. Um, but yeah, this one, I mean, it, it is interesting. I wonder whether or not they're trying to kind of pass off, you know, pass the buck or... or hand over the franchise, whether or not that's a hospital pass or not, to Jai Courtney, who's an Australian actor who is about to just be huge because um, it's whether or not it will remain to be seen whether or not he'll be like a new Sam Worthington. But he was just in Jack Reacher uh, with Tom Cruise and now he's opposite um, Bruce Willis in, in Die Hard and he's, he was back home recently shooting uh, Joel Edgerton's new film Felony. And and then I think he's in I Frankenstein, a Stuart Beatty film. So he's about to like this year. He's about to launch. Is I Frankenstein going to finally be what I've been waiting for for five or six years now? Ooh, a sexy Frankenstein movie? I think it might be a sexy Frankenstein movie. There's Watch so much face. legs on the sexy Frankenstein idea. <laughs> it's like a man built from others to be the perfect human, but the one thing that he lacks is a soul, and well, all hang he on. needs if- is a pretty lady to give him that soul. Sorry, I, yeah. this is an idea I've been <laughs> rumbling around for a while. Well, hang on. They, they, in this film, there was that gratuitous butt shot of Jai Courtney as he's, as he's walking into the club in that opening scene. So maybe, you know, maybe he's your sexy Frankenstein or your sexy monster. I'm not sure. <laughs> Watch this face. <laughs> but back to the film. So as this movie begins, if I understand correctly, John McClane is not retired, right? The NYPD cop played by Bruce Willis. Yeah. In fact, the very first thing we see of him, and this is kind of a clever opening, is him shooting through the screen that we're looking at, right? There's a, there's a, there's a sort of scrim in front of the screen. It's suddenly filled with bullet holes, and we see that Detective John McClane is doing some target practice. Yeah, he's still shooting bullseyes, unlike this film. Pretty much. Although the film, what it has the cold open of Jai Courtney um, as as Jack, um, a CIA agent coming in, and he like blows a guy away in a nightclub. And the hilarious thing, there's actually quite a lot of Russian to read in this film. And I'm thinking for like a mindless action film, you've got to do quite a lot of reading. But it's hilarious because he he talks, I don't know, there's a whole setup about, I mean, you guys have seen the film, you know what the setup is. But um, I love the fact that he he talks about the, you know, he says, you know, Komanov says to say hello and goodbye and goodbyes in capitals, just in case you didn't realize that what he was saying was, you know, goodbye, bush, bush, and kills the guy. And then, and then that's, then we cut to John McClane shooting bullseyes. Oh, yeah, you're right. We do have a cold open. So we learn at once that Jai Courtney is in Russia doing some sort of CIA work, right, involving executing... Who is this guy? We don't know. A gangster? An associate of Karamov, the deposed, not deposed, uh, bankrupt Russian billionaire who is going to stand a trial and has some kind of connection with a guy who's going to become the defense minister of Russia. Right. Wow, I'm glad you got that because it just went straight over. I actually, yeah, your cognitive abilities far <laughs> surpass mine if you got that from this I movie. actually thought that the opening, the cold opening up to Bruce Willis shooting was actually pretty well put together and a pretty tight little pasty. sequence of revealing information without being too draggy and like did a good job of setting up what the plot would be. You're taking a few cues from, like, Bourne, mm-hmm. right? It felt, you know, you had that kind of, you know, yeah, that, that feeling of, of energy and, and, uh, and surprise, I suppose, because you, you think that this is the good guy and then he comes into a nightclub and blows someone away and you're like, what just happened? I do kind of miss starting with John McClane, which the first and the second do. Uh, the third and the fourth, not so much. 
but I think that that's an acceptable path to take. But if the rest of the thing didn't go off the rails so hard, <laughs> well, do you do you reckon that they were trying to hand they're trying to hand over the franchise to Jack Courtney? If they're trying to hand over the franchise to somebody, I would look for somebody a little more identifiable in like a personally charismatic way than Jack Courtney. He was totally serviceable as like an um, action movie uh, dude, but he doesn't have that like particular fun unique charisma that a guy like Bruce Willis I mean there's a huge a shoes to fill though right I thought yeah. physically they look quite similar there's a scene where they're both standing side by side in an elevator and and they're both kind of just standing kind of slumped over and, and you do you see the physical similarities between them yeah, yeah. it's funny especially after having seen Bruce Willis in Looper this year yeah. right where he plays not the father but the, the older self of Joseph Gordon-Levitt who looks nothing in real life like Bruce Willis but in a way is, was far more convincing as his double than Jai Courtney is who, who sometimes it seems a little bit like an action figure meathead though that could be the <laughs> that could be the role and not him it's not like he's given any marvelous lines to mm-hmm. say yeah, so let's get to amazing. let's get to how how does Bruce Willis get to Moscow and start chasing the, the bad guys with his son so we find we realize immediately that Bruce Willis is looking for his son who he's been estranged from from a while and his NYPD contact has dredged up that his son is about to go on trial with a uh, a pretty deep rap sheet uh, in Moscow court so Bruce Willis gets his daughter Mary Elizabeth Winstead to drive him to the airport and fly to Moscow to save his son uh, which falls in line with standard diehard tropes of <laughs> John McClane being kind of a sad sack and estranged from his family and first time we see him he's separated from his wife second time we see him he's things are going better but by the third time he's divorced and an alcoholic fourth time his daughter won't talk to him fifth time his son is about to go to prison for life. Right, he's now, he's now made amends with Mary Elizabeth Winstead by saving her from Timothy Oliphant, right? <laughs> yeah. But but he still has to make amends with his son. And that's the thing, um, she drops him off at the airport it's like, I love you dad, and you know, and gives him what, the idiot's guide to Moscow mm-hmm. um, and he's like, ha ha ha. And that was some of the thing, like, he wisecracks his whole way through this film, and I know he wisecracks through the other films too, but on some level here, he just seemed like an old man kind of ranting, rather than because I don't know whether the sound mix was weird in the screening that we were at, but you couldn't hear a lot of his wisecracks he was just kind of muttering and rambling like an old dude and I was like come on if you're going to make wisecracks A let them be good and B let them not just be constantly I'm on vacation I'm on vacation that was like his one joke throughout this entire film and And you know make them fun the best part about the John McClane character I think is that he's kind of a sad sack in real life and we're like catching him on the one day that he due to circumstances outside of his control gets to be a hero um, so you're saying if you could look at the, the entirety of John McClane's life, it would have like five exciting days in it? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the sense that you get from the Die Hard movies is that he's a total loser 99% of the time. And then these four or five days, circumstances wound up that he got to do something amazing and then immediately went back to being a sad divorce, estranged from his kid's alcoholic. <laughs> Well, isn't that what, what Jack says at one point? He's like, this isn't what we do, Dad. We don't do hugs. We, you know, you kill bad guys. Like, that's what you do. You kill mm-hmm. scumbags or whatever. So, yeah, there is that thing that may, but maybe he just lucks into it five times, <laughs> killing bad guys. But so everything we're saying makes it sound like this movie would be of a piece with the general awesome to mediocre range of the other movies. Why is it so much the worst? Well, we've only gotten into the first 10 minutes of the plot, <laughs> where after that, I think, is where it starts to unravel. So he gets to Moscow, he figures out where his son is, he goes to the court, and immediately the court is set upon by 
some kind of terrorist or paramilitary-seeming organization. They detonate some car bombs. The guy, Karamov, who's on trial, and Jack, who is going to testify against him uh, and claim that he was ordered by Karamov to assassinate that guy we saw in the cold opening, uh, escape. In the chaos. In the chaos. They run into Bruce Willis. That's a great scene, actually, mm-hmm. where, where Bruce is just in the middle of the street, and they almost he almost runs him, Jack almost runs him over. He's like... Jack? And he's like, Dad? And then the rest of the film, he calls him John, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. call him Dad till right at the very end. So I thought that was a, that was at least funny, like our, our screening Yeah, well, the, the idea that your dad would be John McClane and would sort of pop out of nowhere in the middle mm-hmm. of your Moscow car chase and just <laughs> grab the hood of your car was, yeah. was, was, was a good detail. So immediately after that, Jack and Karamov speed off in their van, pursued in a giant souped-up Humvee. Yeah, it's like a tank. I don't by, even know what's going on. By the paramilitary guys. And Bruce Willis hijacks another Humvee and chases after them. And okay, I'm, now let's talk about that car chase sequence. Yeah. So it's that's huge. the first big action sequence. It feels like it lasts about 20 solid minutes, the car chase. Oh, yes. The body count is in the dozens, probably. I think that the one thing that I had to suspend my disbelief the most in a movie I've seen in the last year is this car chase. <laughs> Just because it's so absurd, so over the top, so much incidental civilian uh, and property damage and not a single Russian cop, no authority presence. It's literally like maybe one of the closest to car chase porn (laughs) that I've ever seen. But There's not no... particularly competently shot either. I mean, I guess we're used to Bourne and Bond and, and using those the quick cutting, but it just didn't really feel... I mean, there was momentum there, but I actually, I think I wrote a note here that, you know, the soundtrack was doing all the heavy lifting. Like, the soundtrack's like, dun, 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 you know, you're, you're kind of getting your heart rate up there, but only because the music's telling you to. But the other thing that struck me about this car scene is that it's just a huge Mercedes advert. So every single car, except for the one that, for the Chechnyans that they steal later on, is a Merc. And um, the one that he, so he he's in like um, John's in a some sort of Humvee at one point, and then gets into a G-class Mercedes and starts like off-roading like over cars and stuff, going monster truck mode. And the whole thing is just a massive Mercedes ad. I'm like, nice, go the G-class. <laughs> Was that only me that was picking up on that? Nice. I did not pay any attention to the make of the car. Uh, I did notice the niceness of the cars. It was like a Maybach maybe later when outside the Russian club. Uh, yeah, it seemed like the car budget for this spared no expense. Yeah. I think the Chechenian car was like a Maserati or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But it was it was pretty funny just to see this like G-class Mercedes like wreaking havoc in the middle of Moscow. And, um, and just the fact that the death-defying antics of John McClane. I mean, we know, we've seen him fall. We've seen him crawl across glass. But here he just gets caned time and time again and just pops up out of the car and, like, nothing's happening. He's like, oh, yeah, just brushes off, walks on. I have to say one thing. I had, <laughs> it's not particularly well shot, but I, idea-wise, conceptually, the idea of a part of a car chase where you're actually driving on top of traffic, right? The traffic mm-hmm. jam is so bad. And that's established earlier in Bruce Willis's ride from the airport in Moscow that the traffic is terrible, that he's essentially just doing, as you say, a monster truck rally on top of the cars and sort of yelling, sorry, ma'am, as he drives over the cars. But once again, as far as disbelief suspension, wouldn't that involve essentially crushing the skulls of dozens oh, yeah. of different people? That's what I was thinking about during the entire time is that <laughs> the incidental casualties of this car chase would have been huge, tragic. Uh, and that's like my first... Like, what's the moral math yeah, here? Yeah, that's my first big problem with this original Die Hard movie missing Die Hard beats is that I feel it's so essential for the stories that it's John McClane getting caught up in a plot that he 
can't the only way for him to get out of it is to kill the bad guys and that he like has to do these things you know in the first in the first one he's the one guy not taken hostage in a hostage situation mm-hmm. in the second one he's on the ground in an air his wife is in an airplane that's involved in a uh, a terrorist plot a paramilitary plot in the third one it's a revenge thing and Hans Gruber's bro- brother specifically brings John McClane into the equation of the plot. In the fourth one, he's driving Justin Long to just drop him off in a routine police escort. And Justin Long becomes the centerpiece of unraveling this nationwide... Fire sale. Yeah, terrorist plot. Mm -hmm. This one, he goes looking for his son, who he knows is in trouble, finds his son in the midst of being in trouble, and then immediately chooses with no real force behind it other than what we are told but not really shown is a loving father-son redemption moment uh, or impulse to kill hundreds of civilians just in the pursuit of his son who he has no idea where he's going, what he's doing, what he's involved with, why, what the stakes are, why he's pursuing him other than, oh, I saw my son speed off being chased by this other car. Yeah, but he's nattering the whole time. He's like, what's going on? Like he just he doesn't really seem to know what's happening at that point. But yeah, he's totally fine to steal a G class Merc from a guy who comes out and yells at him and he punches like so John punches this like yuppie guy. And do you notice how loud the punch was? They like had supersonic this punch. It just sounded absolutely ridiculous and he decks the guy and and steals his car. But yeah, the whole I mean that's kind of case in point, right? He Mm -hmm. just punches out this a, a, yeah, yeah, a total bystander. innocent civilian. Yeah. And in the other films, the thing is that when he's put into those situations, it like justifies him incurring incidental damage, punching a civilian, because he's got something that he needs to do. Or else, like, you know, a bomb's gonna go off in a New York City elementary school or something. In this one, he's it's all hunches and motivations and what he wants to do rather than what has to be done. And that kind of cheapens the driving over Russian civilians' cars because there's suppose, no justification. Yeah, oh, but I suppose, like, the parental love. I mean, yeah, I agree with you that it's told rather than shown, but, I mean, the fact is he thinks his son's in trouble. He thinks his son is a fugitive. And I would say that as a parent, that would be your number one priority to, would be to safeguard your son. So, But whether or not that involves, like, killing lots of random strangers... I don't know. I mean, he's John McClane. Do we care? Mm-hmm. I don't know. He's got utilitarian ethics. Okay. Yeah. I think it just indicates an overall, overall looser laziness of this script that the diehard idea is kind of built on this clever idea of being trapped in a situation, you know, where there's like a structural... Forced to save the world. Yeah. Forced to save the world. Exactly. And this didn't have that structural motivation and had kind of an idea of looking for a plot to embroil yourself in. Yeah, it was the idiot abroad idea, right? Mm. Like he was just kind of this guy goofing around who just happened to get caught up in all of this carnage. Let's take a quick break here, guys, for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips. And they add 10,000 new clips every week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. 
You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Once you decide to purchase, use this offer code, SPOILER2, and any new account will receive 30% off. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER2. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. Okay, back to A Good Day to Die Hard. So how is it that we end up in Chernobyl midway through the movie? Kind of the laziness plot aspect, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that the only thing that you can say for international audiences, what's something that went down in Russia? And they're like, Chernobyl, cool, we'll go there. That was a while ago. That was also, you know, like 80s. Let's go back to like, let's, the whole thing's so retro. Actually reminded me of like an old Alias episode or something. <laughs> it was just terrible. The entire movie proceeds much like the car chase, which is moves very fast with little justification. So there are like a number of double crosses of the villains and you never really even, other than Karamov, I don't even remember any of the villains' names. Well, yeah, let me stop you right there. Villains, I think that's a big diehard beat that this movie misses and you guys are more familiar with the old diehards than me. I have to admit there may be a couple in there that I haven't even seen. Um, yeah, I, who's, but who's the bad guy? I mean, to me, the, the bad guy is Alan Rickman. It's Hans Gruber from the first one. Right, that, I mean, the gold standard, it was set oh. so high with this series, but, but, but every other one that I've seen that I can think of has at least a big, outsized one villain, somebody who creates one specific center of gravity against John McClane. And this movie is very diffuse in its villains. I mean, who would you say the main villain even is? There's the tap dancing carrot eater. (laughs) The carrot eater? What is (laughs) Who bites it about about halfway through. That seems like, that character is like screenwriting 101, like notes you'd get. Right, give your villain a quirk. Yeah, where you're just trying to give an identifying thing to a character to give to make them something memorable. That is, but it's that like, is actually Simpsons parody level, yeah. the tap dancing carrot eating villain. Yeah, who has who I can't even remember their name or even what their motivation is. Wasn't in it Nijinsky? Like, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a good line. Whoa, Nijinsky. But <laughs> that was the closest this movie came to a Yippie Kaye motherfucker line. Although that movie it, that line itself gets repeated in the movie. Yeah, and kinda lazily again. We can get to that when we get to the end. Yeah, just mumbled almost Ugh. off screen. But so so then ca- tap dancing carrot eater is supplanted by other well, villains as well. Was, well, so we have the politician guy who gets his weird, like, Reservoir Dogs moment walking towards us with a flanked with, like, judges or whatever at one point. And I'm like, I don't even know what's going on with him. But then he is um, dispatched in, in a massage parlor, isn't he? Mm-hmm. By the the big twist is that um, Koromov, who's played by Sebastian Koch from um, Das Leben der Anderen, the, the Lives of Others, who was great, um, he, he turns out to be, he was the guy who was going to get extradited to the States for helping them out. Right, so he's supposed to be the whole time a good guy, political prisoner, right? Yeah, and so I guess that's the difference. Rather than having, like, the egomaniacal bad guy, you have the good guy who turns into the bad guy. But that character is just too colorless in the first place and and has too little screen time for us to really care that much about his conversion from good guy to bad guy. Do you you all agree? And by time he's become the final bad guy, we've cycled through two other guys who are supposed to be pulling the strings, who our hate is supposed to be mildly directed at. So by time we get to the second twist where the guy who is supposed to be the MacGuffin, the guy that they're trying to get out of Russia the entire time, is the bad guy. It's like, oh, okay, all well, right. Let's not My hatred is diffused. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I have nowhere to put it. But let's not forget his daughter, right? So I think that's more the setup is that you've got the father and son in John and Jack McClane and then you've got the father and daughter, which is what reminded me of the whole Alias plot of going to Chernobyl as mm-hmm. the whole father-daughter thing from Alias. But I think the, yeah, the Koromov and his daughter, so the twist is you think that the daughter's on his side and then she kidnaps him, but then the double twist is that they're actually working together to get the uranium, the billion dollars worth of uranium, um, you know, so... Uh, yeah. And then secretly she's stored in a vault in Chernobyl, in which Chernobyl. is why they go there in the end. I mean, it's and it did have it did have that 
which is constantly the diehard plot, which is it's always about the money in the end. Right. So you know going in that if somebody's character is like a politically motivated uh, crime, it's not. It's about the money. It's going to all drop away, all the yeah. ideology, right? Uh, which I enjoy, but it's also like describe any of those villains. Describe the daughter. Describe the soon-to-be minister. And you, like give them two adjectives, and you can't because they're – Carrot eating tap dancing. Yeah, carrot eating tap dancing. That's like it's stuff they do, not you know who they are. Yeah, the daughter was weird to me because I thought they were going to build her character, and then she just went nowhere, and then like commits suicide after Daddy dies, but does mm-hmm. it so ham-fistedly that she doesn't actually kill John and Jack as she's committing suicide in her helicopter. And you just kind of went, "What, really?" Oh, and did you guys notice that? So when she's like committing suicide in the helicopter. Um, they jump out of the window again. They seem to jump out of lots of things in this without film. Without assessing what's outside the window, right? They're very mm-hmm. lucky that they're always landing on scaffolding and going through and all pools. kinds of construction exactly. pipes and things like that. But essentially, they just leap out of whatever high-story building window they I happen know, to be in. totally. And in that scene, John's actually giving her the finger on the way down, and <laughs> I just burst out laughing. I'm like, no way. So as like she's you know crashing the helicopter to her death, they're jumping away, and he just gives her the bird, and I'm like... Amazing. And don't and forget that her father falls into the propeller. That's true. Well, that was the whole Hans mm-hmm. Gruber death, right? Yeah. Well, Hans Gruber falls, but his brother, Jeremy Irons, gets offed in a uh, somewhat underwhelming helicopter crash. Oh, so it's the in, blend uh, of the two. Yeah. In the end of, um, where are they? They're in just north of the border in Canada at the end of Die Hard 3. Um, so this movie will give you the extremely outsized graphic helicopter crash that Die Hard 3 kind of did not deliver. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did um yeah, I did think that as I was saying before that the you get lots of visual cues to the the first Die Hard and that like the classic Hans Gruber shot of him falling off the building and being like yeah. and then you get that Karamov does that. And he does it quite well and then gets like absolutely axed by the the rotor plane, the rotor wheels, yeah. Yeah, I have to admit that that was kind of a satisfying moment. <laughs> Getting creamed by the propeller. But so I wanted to talk a little bit about the the general laziness of the way these action scenes are filmed that was really salient in this movie in that the director, John Moore, who, what are some of his previous... Okay, let me see. What has John Moore done? He's done Max Payne. He did Behind Enemy Lines and he did The Flight of the Phoenix. So He, he also did the Omen remake, which I oh, kind yeah. of enjoyed, but that is like a very, very spot on remake so it's kind of not notable yeah so max Payne, he knows how to blow shit up i guess and then well the the screenwriter did swordfish the a-team and x-men origins wolverine so skip woods i'm like skip woods who is this guy but swordfish again like serviceable little action you know film the a-team kind of lazy but serviceable again but some i don't know somewhere they just didn't gel and it just went off the rails i mean the thing that i just kept noticing in the way action was shot in this movie is that the language the film grammar kept on changing one minute we would be as you say doing a Reservoir Dogs slow-mo right one of those struts toward the camera so very stylized right in fact a lot of slow motion in general people running in slow motion from explosions and then suddenly we cut to some control room and it's this Paul Greengrass handheld really bad shaky cam right or if we suddenly need I don't know whatever sort of action cliche is needed the, the director would pull it out of the blue. And, it, and as a result, you just you had the feeling that there was no voice, there was no world, the aesthetic world that this movie took place in. So much smash zoom, too. Yeah. That was his favorite crutch is the super wide shot with a smash zoom into a small detail of it. And some zooms out yeah, as well. Yeah, some zooms out. Yeah, and it's just confusing and non, like, without an aesthetic. 
uh, and it doesn't really deliver the story well, and it rings hollow because all these mishmashes of shots and techniques are there to make the action more kinetic, like all the handheld stuff, all the shaky cam is the quick cuts is a style developed specifically to heighten the kineticness of an action movie. But when you're all, when you're throwing it in there without any real direction or purpose or justification of a hand of using handheld or going to these smash cuts or quick cuts or ramping to slow-mo, it just feels like you're trying to build the action using, you know, senior year film school techniques. <laughs> yeah, it felt very much like action film by numbers. It's like, okay, right right here I'm going to steal from Paul Greengrass and have shaky cam and, and right here I'm going to be kind of glossy and do the slow-mo Tarantino thing. We've and then- got the low tracking shot of somebody walking through a kitchen and picking up a gun from a, sh- a chef shot from behind where you can't see their head and you can only see But you see can see their, their ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gratuitous butt shot. I kind of dug that. It's Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like a movie and because it's a diehard movie, I guess it's thought that it can be a movie filmed in tropes without Mm. being its own thing but it very much comes off of that yeah it seems like a wasted opportunity in that regard because i feel like this world is not only so beloved but the characters so beloved and to be so lazy with it and not to think through it enough or to be to rely to rest on your laurels so much to just go back to the original Die Hard and be like okay we're going to make all those jokes again we're going to make the upka motherfucker joke again we're going to have the hans gruber fall again like it just felt like they just cherry picked from all of the the tropes and, and the things that you love, but the you know it's it's much less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, and especially at this point when we have four good Die Hard movies, and even after the last one, Live Free or Die Hard, I thought was a great action movie, and I just rewatched it on Saturday, and it I think is still fun. Yeah, totally. It at this point you could definitely like pull back and play some fun big meta jokes with the series, and you know set up this world that John McClane lives in other than these series of one-off days in his life that are crazy for no reason, but like where do they come from and why does he keep getting involved in them and stuff like that? So about John McClane, I think we should end on that note. First of all, do we want the Die Hard franchise to die hard <laughs> once and for all? <laughs> well, or think- do we want it to continue in some guise? And also, what is it about John McClane? Why is it that we all agree, and people in general seem to agree, that however bad these movies get, there's something about that character that transcends them or survives them? Yeah, well, I would say, I, you know, I mean, whether or not they're going to hand it over to Jai, Jai Courtney to continue... Uh, I, I might need to watch it again to, to see that. But I think, I mean, Bruce Willis has already moved on with Red, right? Retired, extremely dangerous. He's already kind of planning his retirement into, like, still shoot him up films, but being retired and having or, fun with it in that Or the Expendables way. that he's also in. That's true. It did feel a bit like the Expendables, didn't it? I have not seen the Expendables, but I can imagine that it feels like the Expendables. Yeah, like lazy just homages, just, yeah. you know, grappled together and, and just wedged into some sort of film. Yeah, definitely. But as far as John McClane, there is, I mean, bless him, I said to you as we were walking out, he had to land the line with Jack, like, I love you, you're my son, I've got your back. The and big father-son the scene, big right? The big father-son scene. And bless him, he did. Like, I was there going, look, you're, you know, you've been rambling like an old man. The wisecracks have not landed, or very few of them landed. But in that moment, you know, Bruce Willis can bring it. And there is something about John McClane reaching out to his son. And you, like, I did. I went, yep, okay, well done, sir. You landed that line. Especially in the void that, that he's operating in, in terms of the context of their relationship or knowing who the son is, right? You care nothing about their relationship. But but somewhere somehow, you're right, he pulls something out of thin air there that is a little moving in a I, way. I think the thing that I really love about John McClane, I think what people identify with is that he's he's a little sad and that his imperfection 
his his character flaw that you can identify with isn't that he's has to overcome anything to do the action stuff. The action stuff comes naturally to him, but that in his real life he's kind of a loser. And even throughout the entirety of Die Hard where he's doing all this superhero shit and saving all these people, he still doesn't really know if his marriage is going to work out the next day, you know? And That's he's, true, yeah. Um, and I think that that's wrapped up in the particular strength of Bruce Willis to be kind of a great melancholy hard ass. Uh, and I love sad Bruce Willis. Any sad Bruce Willis performance. So Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, Moonrise yeah. Kingdom is great. <laughs> and I think he's so great, great at playing a kind of sad guy with a tough exterior to different levels. Um, he can still look amazing in a tight white shirt wielding a machine gun. Like mm-hmm. still, like the guy cuts a pretty good figure. Exactly. But you but there's like a, a soul to him and Bruce Willis doesn't have to do a lot of legwork to bring that soul, that melancholiness, that kind of loser in real life ness out of John McClane. So I don't know if anybody else could do it though, because it's such it's such a Bruce Willis role, you know? If they're going to hand it over, hand the franchise over to Jai Courtney, then they need to get that guy a personality first. <laughs> I don't know. I, I might be a bit of a defender of him. I thought he was given nothing to do, like absolutely nothing to do, except, hey, I'm a CIA agent who's like stuffing up my mission and, you know, given like... Right, oh, I've got I, really big guns on my arms and in my hands. <laughs> true. And I got some guns from some Chechnyans and that's cool too. Um, but yeah, like he's given very little to do. But I do think there's something about him, especially if you watch Jack Reacher, because he kind of opens Jack Reacher in a terrifying sniper attack. And there is something very watchable about him. He does have a quality to him, but it's whether or not he can then bring... Like going up against John McClane, like that's huge. Um, and he didn't he didn't have any of those like kind of wisecracking lines that didn't really work really well, them being the odd couple. But there's you know, I would say watch this space. I think that maybe there is something to him. And not I'm not just saying this in a biased Australian way. I think that, you know, having seen Jack Reacher and now this, he's got those makings of an action of an action star. So are you all saying that this should be the last diehard? You don't you don't want it to go on? <laughs> I, I say we need another Die Hard just so that we don't end on that shocking, like, freeze frame of the family reunion walking into the sunset a la Armageddon, like a weird kind of thing that was going on there. Yeah, it might have as well have been, like, a freeze frame group hug, the final, final shot. Yeah, do you see the smile on his face right at the end there, too? He's like, I've got my kids back together. Yay. Schnee. Uh, yeah, and I think Bruce Willis is definitely showing his age to, like, getting to be an implausible amount for the things that John McClane does. It's like getting to the the point where I'm like, I don't know if like a 63-year-old's bones could handle that fall. Uh, <laughs> that took you out of the film too, hey? So the, the car carnage and then all of the falls. You're like, are you going to be okay, buddy? Like, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But well, it's sad that he and Liam Neeson are kind of reaching that point at yeah, the same moment. And I think that there are different ways that he could be an old badass. I mean, you know, Clint Eastwood can still be old and badass as Grand Torino uh, showed us, but just in a different way. And yeah, I agree. I kind of want there to be at least one more diehard handled by somebody who actually like has a vision or an idea or like something that they want to do, a purpose or direction. Because this just felt totally hacked together by like a studio processing yeah, designed board. by committee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wait, inspiration for the next one. He hasn't protected a grandchild yet, right? Ooh. That's true. Yeah, and it might work as with an older John McClane because the more vulnerable John McClane gets, the better he gets as an action hero. So, 
Yeah, I want to see John McClane with a baby Bjorn. Like, let's let's make that happen. <laughs> jumping jumping out of a building Just into clutching. a helicopter. <laughs> and also, hopefully, to fulfill my dream of having a very Billy Joel-themed Only the Good Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. There have to be more if only because the titles haven't all been used up. There's then, too many yeah. other puns on die that mm-hmm. we could still go with. What about what about playing dice? <laughs> <laughs> let's roll the dice. Roll another Die Hard. <laughs> a Die Hard Day's Night. Reaching, really reaching. All right. Well, thank you so much. I would not have been able to get through either the screening or the discussion without your backup. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. Our producer is Chris Wade. Thank Hello. you, Chris. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.